I'm glad you made it back. You're in uh, digital dangers, obviously. Um, it's been a long time. Two weeks ago with you, just trying to lay down some foundational stuff with you. And um, didn't give a lot of time for question and answer at the end. And, uh, but I hope to do that along the way. You can interrupt me. This is a teaching format, so I anticipate you'll want to interact a little bit or offer some, some thoughts or some insights along the way, and I welcome that. So please do. Um, don't feel like you interrupted me or whatever. I um, hope that you'll do that along the way. And um, we are going to make a slight adjustment in our study plan because I realized after last week that I only have five weeks versus six. So we're going to mesh two together. We're going to do uh, this one and this one tonight in addition to just reviewing that first one. So we're going to kind of catch ourselves up this week at the time that we have. So before we begin, um, is there anything we can pray for you about? Is there any, any prayer needs or anything like that we should be mindful of as we pray start off our time together? Maybe think about that for a minute. Just uh, pray for. The are on their way. Oh. They'll be on their way. Um, That's Wednesday. this week. Okay, think, yeah. Wednesday. Cool. That's gonna be really cool. Get the Mosheras back. Let's pray for their safety and get through all the things they have to get through, all the checkpoints and all of that, flights and all of that detail. That'll work out for them and get them back home. It'd be nice to see them again. Any others? All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll start right off, okay? Thanks, Father, for this day. Thank you so much for the opportunity to gather around your word and to discuss these, um, this issue particularly. I pray for um, great wisdom and care that you will carefully guard my, my mouth so that I might say things that are edifying and helpful to the equipping of the saints. I pray that you would um, help us, Lord, as we uh, seek to have an understanding better into these things, how we might steward them better for your glory, um, for our growth as well. We also think of our young ones that are here with us, our teenagers, our young people growing up as digital natives, basically. Um, They've never known a time when they didn't have a digital device. And so uh, perhaps for them, Lord, this might seem odd that we would even focus so much on this, but perhaps, Lord, it would be helpful for them to be um, understanding how their heart would operate in regards to the relationship to these things, and I pray that their hearts would be open, especially, and um, that they'd be receptive to the things we'll learn this evening together. We do pray for our, our friends, the Mosheras, as they travel, that their trip will go well, um, as well as we can possibly be hoped for, and that their things will arrive as they transition back here to the States and begin uh, taking up their responsibilities and services here amongst us, Lord. We thank you for them for their great testimony for you and their love for Christ. And we'll pray for your, uh, gr- your grace in the remainder of our time together. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible and you can juggle all this paperwork, open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> we'll start at the beginning again. Uh, we were intent on trying to lay down a theological foundation, a biblical theology of technology, which is uh, may sound impossible to do from a book that's uh, 4,000 years plus old. (laughs) But the Bible is nevertheless relevant. It always has been, always will be, always speaks to to our time, and uh, there is no exception here when it comes to technology. So uh, we began in Genesis 1. We started to look at this wonderful mandate that uh, God gave to man in the garden 
uh, a mandate that he was to take the created order, the things that God had made, and to steward them. To, uh, for he talked about he talks about in Genesis chapter one verse verse twenty six. He says, "Let us make man in our image." Man is made in the similitude of God. He's made after God's own image, according to his likeness. And then it says here, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. There's that more of that ruling terminology, that dominion terminology, uh, subduing, ruling. Again, it's seen here as it says, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. You see, the things God created were made for the benefit, for the advantage, for the growth and flourishing of his, of his creation, of his man of the one that uh, he, he created here, God's provision is seen right here in this verse. It's beautiful. Um, all these things were given for you, he says. Um, it shall be food for you, it says in verse 29, and now into verse 30, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So we want to just begin by looking once again at that creation mandate that God gave to his man, that he would take the created realm and, and to reclaim it and to renew it and, re- and to renovate and to make things uh, out of the things that he made, out of raw materials that he had made. We see, if you begin in Genesis, you see a garden, but if you go to Revelation, you'll see a city, a glorious city uh, coming down out of, um, out of heaven, New Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful scene. So God did not intend things to stay the way they are. He intended them to be, um, over time, reordered and changed and transformed and uh, to be made um, glorious. So, And I wanted you to open up that first uh, handout here, week one, and I wanted to give some preliminary definitions. That way we're clear on what I'm talking about when I say technology. Technology is a much broader concept than just the digital device you might have in your lap or in your pocket. Technology really is a broader idea encompassing the reordering of raw materials for human purposes. Both intelligence and raw materials to do this technology originates from God. So as Christians, we recognize that God has not only given us the materials to create microchips and um, processors and drives and all these things that go into making these devices, but God has also given us the wisdom and intelligence to put these together and that these were all to be done, as was with everything in Genesis 1, to his glory and for the flourishing of humanity. So there is a, there's a mandate here from God to, to, to engage these things, to use them, and to profit from them. So uh, we also want to mention media. Media is going to be distinguished in the lesson from technology because media is what gets communicated across technological mediums. Okay, Media could be anything. It could be video. It could be audio. Any manner of communication or means of communication, chiefly in digital format, that's intended to influence content consumers. So when I say media, I'm not. I'm going to say technology is not immoral. Media is different, though, and media can be very immoral. Okay. So we want to make sure we keep those two things separate and distinct in our minds, so we don't get confused and leave here thinking that 
my cell phone is, is evil. It's the mark of the beast, or whatever we joked about last week. Uh, the, the cell phone itself obviously is not. It's the media content consumed on it that uh, needs careful um, discernment. So we covered that in the next part. Is technology inherently evil? Um, we concluded that was not the case. Technological advancement and the Dominion mandates um, there on page three. That's just a rehashing of simp- uh, the, the things we just spoke about just now. We did not want to leave that Genesis chapter one passage thinking that therefore technology remained completely whole and pure and <laughs> was uh, it was intent was was never it didn't have any further development because in Genesis chapter three obviously another stage formed in the uh, the history of technology as it were the theology of technology what did technology look like after the fall well we learned that technology became very important because they would need to now form and create tools and, and implements to be able to cultivate the ground and to raise up farms and uh, plant and uh, create food and, and to have now the ability to create clothing and things like that. That became a result of the fall. So um, technology was really uh, remained in God's created order um, as one of God's graces, I think, one of God's means to mitigate the effects, the horrible effects of the curse. You know, with, with we have... We have a lot of corruption, weeds, pain. All of this happens now after the result of the fall. And technology was a way to help man um, to uh, endure that. And so because of this, I, I made the probably a staggering claim last week that some people would often think then, because of technology's power, to minimize the painful effects of the fall, some people might come to think of technology as having a having an ability to be a savior in their lives. Uh, that, that technology itself could it remove, could be the hope of, for humanity and could redeem humanity by pushing back all of the effects of the curse. I mean, after all, we live in a day and age which we, when we have Roundup and we have epidurals and we have things like that that make those things that were, uh, that were uh, part of the, the curse in Genesis 3 seem to be a lot less of a problem for man. So can, can tech reverse the curse? Well, we looked at Genesis chapter 11 in brief re, um, last two weeks ago. We talked about how Babel was, uh, I think, man's attempt in his own technological prowess to try to raise up a rebellion against God. Technology seemed to have the power to diminish the power, uh, seemed to have the power to diminish sin's curse. It seemed like a savior, but it actually... Um, but it may actually come to be viewed as the solution to all of mankind's problems. They started to build this gigantic tower. This is quite a feat, by the way, to be able to do this. And we don't want to think of these guys as ignorant, uh, primitive peoples. These, these were quite sophisticated people who had mastered the tools and the tech of their time. And now we're using it in a way to defy the God that created them and defy his order. Um, so... Technology, we, we warned here, technology can seem like a savior. Technology can make us feel transcendent, as though we have no one to answer to. We have uh, thrown off the, the, the confines of our mortality. We're, it can seem like we're no longer limited by space, time, or matter anymore, because technology closes all those gaps. Technology can give us the illusion that we are godlike possessing powers and capabilities that are beyond human constraints. You may say, that's quite a far stretch, but I think you'll see, as you go forward, that's, that is sort of a, um, a recurring theme as we look through 
scriptures that people tend to use their gifts and powers and enablement, the technological tools that God has allowed us to develop, and we use them and against the against the will of God, against the order of God in our lives. I mentioned this briefly last time we were together that uh, we uh, we face a worship disorder as a result. If you have your Bible, flip over to Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. I know I'm skating through this quickly, but I'm not trying to recover the same ground we covered together last time together. I want to get to new things. But for those new joining us, i catching you up in a quick way. The Cliff Notes version, I guess. The worship disorder. We suggested that... Um, because of their tool, because of their power, because of their integration with every aspect of our daily life. I mean, uh, technology has successfully taken over almost every dimension of our lives, hasn't it? If you might have at home several devices connected to your home network, you have Bluetooth-enabled devices all over the place, um, you might control your thermostat or your security systems from your cell phone. I mean, um, you might have a refrigerator that's tricked out with all the latest tech tool, you know, tech um, analytics on it and everything. It's, it's, you might have all of this stuff. And I just want you to know that that's going to become more and more, obviously, the way of our, our lifestyle in the future. And because of that, we can tend to depend more on those things and become more, um, I think, more uh, unaware of our tendency to, um, to d- depend more on them than what we ought to and uh, to not be mindful of our tendency to worship our technology. Um, Psalm 115, verse 3 through 8. Let's read this just quickly. It says this, But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. And they have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Yeah. I said, is it any wonder why people worship their smartphones? It's, it's, it's deceived us into thinking that we can become like God. We worship these devices like digital idols because they give us the illusion of mort- immortality. This is why so, pe- so many people foolishly believe they can build their lives on shifting sand of social media. I, I notice, did you catch that phrase where it says, those that, um, in verse, uh, verse 9, it says, those who make them will become like them. We become like what we worship. That's just a fundamental principle you can see. If you worship social media and you are constantly following that and you are ad- adopting lifestyle patterns that emulate those who you follow on social media in in manner of their dress or lifestyle choices or whatever, you're becoming like what you worship. You're conforming into those things. And uh, um, that's simple. uh, That's a simple understanding of how we could understand worship is becoming like that which we adore. Um, I said, uh, lastly, um, in the last one here, a quote from Reinke. Reinke was a helpful resource along the way. Reinke wrote a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And I even kind of recommended it for you to read and uh, digest last time we were together. Um, and he had this quote in his book that I thought was helpful. And he likened the iPhone to the uh, household gods of carved stone and wood. 
on page five, if you're looking for a way where we're at. He said, these, these idols were more like our technologies, divine oracles of knowledge and prosperity used by worshipers in an attempt to control and manipulate the events of their life for personal benefit. So if you think about it, you know, as that pagan would be resourcing his idol, looking for his idol to deliver to him knowledge about the future, knowledge about uh, his, you know, his his life, his, the events of his life, the circumstances of his of his situation that he was in, and he would be praying to that pagan god. He's looking for direction for his life and other things like that. You can kind of see somewhat of a similarity between the way we utilize our cell phones to try to predict things in the future and try to understand our own place in this world. And and we can oftentimes resource these things whenever we're without knowledge and we lack understanding. We more likely to go to Google than we are to God or His Word in a lot of cases. So something to think about and I, I think there is uh, at, the, at the very base level there is something common to that um, we can use our digital devices to retreat from God's rule by living our lives in a, in a, in a world where man has a, a world of man's making a, an internet world uh, where we operate by a total different set of rules than God's world does and um, so we uh, suggested that that might be the case, and that I wanted to kind of have you look at this for a moment. Moment, just take a few minutes here with me, and let's look at tech check self assessment here. I want you to answer this to your to yourself honestly. Do you do this often, occasionally, rarely, or never? Just think about this and um, see if this is uh, if this is just me. <laughs> it might not be just me here. All right. Do you find that you easily lose time? Uh, spent online, use track of time spent online. Does that happen? Or often you'll look up and you'll say, "Oh my, I didn't realize I was, I was engaged in online activity that long." Does that happen often, occasionally, rarely, or never? I'm prone to put off other responsibilities in order to spend time online. Um, how about that? That can happen easily, doesn't it? I'm easily distracted by my phone. I have a hard time concentrating on school, work, family, or maintaining uninterrupted time and devotions, Bible study, and prayer. I'll tell you, that's a tr- struggle for me. Uh, as soon as you open up your Bible, it seems like the Fox News alert hits my phone. I'm interested to see what happens or whatever. Um, you know, you just kind of get pulled away. Distraction is so easy if, if we don't uh, be careful. I'm going to talk more about that in just a little while. Distraction. When I'm bored, I'll get on social media. What do you do when you're bored? You just text or surf the web or play a game on your phone. Does that happen often? Occasionally, rarely, or never? When I feel stressed, I find that I take breaks to spend a little time on my phone and or online because it seems to help me. Okay, Can that, can that become a problem if not guarded carefully, spending too much time that way? If I'm in line and I'm forced to wait for something, I'm probably going to pull out my phone and seek stimulation from it to pass the time rather than perhaps engage your family members or others standing around you. I'll be, I'll be honest. I almost uh, instinctively do that without even thinking about it. That I mean, it's like a comfort thing. I go for my phone. Rather than seeking stimulation from another human being, I'm engrossed in my device. Um. How about this? Number seven, I sense that I'm more attentive to my digital devices than I really should be. And even if by saying that, your conscience is kind of pricking you a little bit, that's something you cannot 
disregard. Do not disregard your conscience on this. You think, I might be spending a little too much time. Then you are spending too much time. Your conscience is not deceiving you there. Okay? We pay, pay attention to that. My online activities could be considered a way of seeking companionship or comfort or distraction from my problems. Instead of dealing with problems biblically, you instead resort to use of your device. It may not be an appropriate use of your device. It might be just a, a way to avoid. It's an avoidance issue. You're using it as a form of escape from problems. That could be an issue. Um, I make excuses to get out of social situations in order to spend more time online rather than you know, be with family or go out with friends or whatever in person. You almost prefer the, the online social en- engagement that you get from Facebook or um, Instagram or some other platform. You say it's more, en- <laughs> it's more exhausting to spend time with people in person than interacting online. Some people will find that just being around people is more exhausting and would prefer their phones to people. Does that happen to you often, occasionally, rarely, or never? You're like, well, that depends on the people. Um, maybe so, maybe so. Just something to think about. Number 11, if I, I tend to fill the empty spaces of my life with online amusements and entertainment, and I lack self-control when it comes to media. Any, anyone prone to binge on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, end up watch lots of, watch, lots of TV and just binge on that you seem to lack self-control it can be a real problem filling the empty space of life with that thing with those things um i feel a desire to be seen and affirmed on social media i post pictures and comments and i obsess about what others are going to post in response you post something and you check it back every 30 seconds every minute or two and you just want to see what people are going to what the reaction is going to be like what is that showing what 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 is that revealing about your heart a real desire for man's approval, man's opinion, maybe perhaps, or something like that. So just some, some provoking questions to try to help you think about what's at stake. When I say digital dangers, you might be thinking about other things regarding to what kind of dangers your privacy might be in jeopardy or uh, the kinds of content you can consume on the Internet. You might be thinking, oh, those are the kind of digital dangers I should be worried about. No, I think there's more subtle ways your heart's exposed and uh, perhaps um, tempted in this regard. So... Um, I want you to think about that. Your phone is a window to your soul. In what ways have you noticed that your phone's having a negative effect on you? You might have noticed that. I, I asked uh, just here at the end, I know the week's already passed and we probably won't have a chance to, to do this, but maybe this coming week, some assignments for you to think about. If you're looking for <coughs> progress in this area, Christian growth and sanctification in this area, this might be helpful. These are just suggested tips, but they're helpful. they've been helpful to me. A time log. Just pay some attention to how much time you're logging on online, being connected. Um, how much time is spent on your digital devices? How much of that time is productive? I.e., maybe it's work-related. Maybe it's something you're doing that has an obvious purpose. And how much of it is just time misspent? Just The Bible says in Ephesians 5, 6, 16 that, uh, that we should be redeeming the time. And as Christians, we don't have time to kill. We have time to redeem. We should be recuperating that time and using it for profitable, God-glorifying means and and ways and ends. Document your misspent time and consider how that time might be better redeemed for God's glorifying purposes. So just something that would be an interesting exercise for you to see for yourself. Uh, The second thing I put here is a vulnerability profile. And that just is a long way of saying 
pay attention to what you're seeking from for your on, from your online experiences. What's driving you to spend hours and hours and hours paging through Amazon and just shopping and shopping and shopping? What's 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 your heart doing in that moment? Is it are you fostering a, a discontentment perhaps or um, looking for just ways to avoid problems or other things or longing for things you wish you could have that you can't afford or other ways like that. What, what, what's motivating you as you shop or you're surfing or you're gaming online? What's going on in your heart? Consider that. Explore what's, uh, What appetites does your heart manifest? And I'll tell you that the, you don't need to probably look too hard for this because um, the, the new wave of the Internet, Web 2.0, is all about predictive analysis. Anything you watch, anything you see online is going to be cataloged, tagged, and um, given back to you. And you're going to be continually offered up, served up from these, these algorithms, things that are similar to the other things you've looked at. So you're constantly being fed what your heart longs for, longs and desires for. It's a very fascinating way because it seems, um, it, I mean, you have, a, you have a very particular temptation profile things that are very unique to the way your heart is oriented to pursue and to, 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 to consume and temptation-wise. And I guarantee you, big tech knows what that is. They're building a profile about you and what you particularly enjoy, what you particularly like, and they're going to see that you see as much of that kind of thing that you can possibly handle and more to keep you feeding on their platforms, keep you going. So you are vulnerable. I do want you to feel that sense of vulnerability online and be aware of that. If you're not aware of that, you're a sucker just waiting to be taken, okay? Um, so build a vulnerability profile. What is my heart most susceptible to chase and pursue? That might be a difficult question to answer at the first on-site, you know, first look at, but you're going to have to spend some time thinking about that. And then lastly, a worship focus. If you see your devices as saviors from your boredom and from your loneliness and stress and difficulty and complexity, you have a worship problem. You think that your tech is going to rescue you from this mundane, boring life or this difficult life, and it's not. Tech isn't capable of rescuing you from these things. It can become an idol which you worship instead of Christ. That's a very real possibility, and it's an actuality. It's something that you have to face, and so the remedy to that is you need to find ways in which you can fully worship Christ, set down the phone, put put away the devices, turn off the internet if you have to, whatever you have to do, and engage your heart fully in the word. You're going to have to be very aggressive about shutting out the distractions that would try to compete with your worship for God. Worship's not something, it's not a once a week activity, is it? We do it once on Sunday. No, it should be a daily thing every day. So you're going to have to viciously go after that worship focus and cultivate that carefully in your life. So hopefully you'll take those three things, give them some thought this week, and uh, I... Uh, I think you'll find it very fruitful to consider um, how you might find growth in that way. And um, if you need any help or suggestions about that, I'd love to keep accountability with you. Me, if, if you want to keep accountability with me, i um, love to take that journey with you on that. All right, I'm in, uh, let's open up the second week. Second week, about deceptive desires. So in our first session together, if you remember, (laughs) I tried to demonstrate to you in that short biblical survey of technology that technology makes empty promises. It promises to fix all your problems. Promises to fix your loneliness problem, fixes your uh, 
money problem, perhaps, or your, it fixes all of these other issues that you might have, anxiety problems, your social problems. It promises all these promises, and it can never fulfill. I said that because technology has allowed you to feel like you can transcend all these physical limitations of time and space and matter. Now you can be easily <coughs> deceived into thinking that you're becoming like God. Uh, you have this illusion of omniscience in your palm of your hand. You don't know anything? Oh, yes, you do. You've got, a, you've got Google at your, at your ready reach, right? Just type in what you seek, and you'll know all the answers to all of the plaguing questions of life. And uh, so you have this idea, this feeling of omniscience and omnipotence and the idea that you can be omnipresent anywhere. Um, we, are, we are aware of things that occur around the globe instantaneously. It's, we're in unprecedented times, you understand? Most up until like maybe 100 years ago, what happened to you was basically restricted to your small locale where you lived. You understand what happened to you is pretty close-knit community. Now you're affected by things that are happening on national and international scales because you have access to that, and you know it in the t- real time that it takes place. You can feel, that's a, uh, and I think a lot of times that's, um, that kind of smothers our souls <laughs> to be able to be aware of everything, to try to be omniscient in the way like that, that, that we try to be. I don't think God wired us to be that at all, uh, that we couldn't, we're not supposed to be able to handle all this information all at once. Um, but nevertheless, we do. We try. And we become discouraged and anxious and fall apart because of it. Um, it's a symptom of us trying to be like God and allowing our technologies to run away with us in that way. Um, we, they give us the illusion of, these omnip- uh, of all these, these qualities of God. We have usurped these qualities of God these, and commandeered these prerogatives of divinity for ourselves. It's almost like we've hacked God. we figured out God can be omnipresent. God can know all things. God can have access to everything. And, his, and he can command these things for his benefit. So can I with the use of technology. In some sense, we think in that way, maybe not explicitly, but subtly we are. And we think because if we can push back sin's curse in the world, it would seem apparent that technology seems capable of delivering us from all our problems. Um, I wonder if you ever noticed the messaging that, that the uh, Apple company, you know, Apple, iPhone, all of that, I wonder if you noticed the messaging you've seen embedded implanted into cultural consciousness. Um, if you ever noticed that the, um, I was going to, um, that they have done this in a very purposeful and it's really interesting way. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were building their Apple One back in 1974 in, their, in Wozniak's parents' garage. These two guys are responsible for creating the Apple One computer. Does anybody remember the Apple One back in the yeah. 80s? Or actually, this is back in the 70s, late 70s. Nobody had one of those. Did you did you happen to have one or play with one or? Yeah, it was a pretty, pretty rugged looking thing. But I mean, this this thing this captured the imagination of a whole subset of people. It was just got people excited. This <laughs> Apple One. I wish I had a picture of it. It looked like a keyboard. It looked like a typewriter sitting on a wood platform with a black and white TV stuck on top of it. It's pretty funny. Uh, but it, nevertheless, it was pretty pretty interesting. Um, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were two buddies who, back in the 70s, were building these things in their garages. And Steve Jobs knew he was creating a device that, according to him, based on the excitement it was building, 
he said in his own words that this, is, this device was going to put a dent in the universe. That's how important this thing was. When it came to naming their device, Steve Jobs took a more philosophical approach. He was a philosophical major in college and had some ideas about that and wanted his, wanted his new technological device to be associated with some interesting um, symbolism. So instead of naming his personal computer something like the other industry giants were calling theirs, like the Commodore 64 and the Trash 80 and all that, they were calling that, uh, they had all these different names for their computers that sound futuristic. Steve Jobs took another tack. Uh, he just chose a company, for his company, he chose a symbol full of ancient meaning. Now the apple for centuries was used in artistic depictions of the Garden of Eden as a symbol of forbidden wisdom. I understand the Bible doesn't say that the fruit that was in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve took was an apple. I understand that. But my interest is in what the company was trying to communicate with their iconography. Steve Jobs knew that the device held forth the same appeal as this forbidden wisdom that was given in the scriptures. He certainly, he, he certainly knew it was attractive to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. This new device held forth infinite possibilities of all knowledge of good and evil, as it were. And it is clear that there was a deliberate allusion to these, this key biblical event in their early marketing. I don't know. If, I'm going to show you some of this. Um, obviously, here's some, an early ad. They were trying to associate with the Garden of Eden. We're looking for the most original use of the apple since Adam. And they're trying to jokingly make this connection between the, the partaking of this apple and receiving the insight and the wisdom to be elite and erudite and to know all these wonderful things. It was a symptom of having, or a symbol of their having, your, having their product in your home. And uh, Jobs and Wozniak were intrigued by the Bible. They did make lots of references to this along the way and as you read their books. Um, they found other ways of tying their product to potent biblical passages. Uh, for instance, when they decided on the price for the first Apple I computer, uh, they thought it would be funny to choose $666.66 for the price point that they would begin to choose to offer up this product, something they both found quite amusing. And when you look at the Apple logo, it isn't just an intact Apple, is it? <coughs> I don't have one up there. But you know, it's, got, it's an Apple with a bite taken out of it. Very interesting that he would choose something like that. Why is why? It, 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 what an evocative image to brand your device with. This this Apple device has been the most successful company in large ways due to their sophisticated marketing campaigns, and having an appealing message and product. So the choice of a bitten apple is not by any is not a mistake by any means. They were intending to say their product is just as seductive as the forbidden fruit, and just as intriguing and alluring. Now, we understand the significance of that bite, don't we? <laughs> what, what occurred when they ate of that forbidden fruit was the downfall of humanity from which we have not yet fully recovered and won't until uh, Christ fully redeems the, the cosmos in, in the final state. Uh, we plunged the entire human race into sin and corruption. Now, imagine with me for a moment if we could go back in time, go to Pastor Farrell's class and find our favorite theology giant of the past and bring them here to our time and let them see for their own eyes this, this logo emblazoned on everybody's devices, everywhere they look, it would not escape them the ir irony of that, that very thing, that, that very logo. Um, that, I'm sure it would be too much for them. Um, 
I.J. I. Weinstock said this. I thought it was an interesting, funny quote. I don't have it up there. Okay, I thought it was up there. Oh, did I go back to? My tech has been really defying me. I don't know why. I can't make it go back. You didn't do it secrets. Yeah, now it's ooh, very spooky. All right, well, anyway, I'll just tell you what it said. I liked what he said. He says, the Bible describes the fall of man caused by humans taking a bite out of a forbidden apple. Is it is it irony or destiny that an image of a bitten apple is emblazed on so many devices that have become our invisible masters? Is it irony or destiny? I think it's an intriguing question to ask. In business today, in business branding, this is what you want. You want to culturally brand and imprint your, your brand, your idea, your image, your concept into everyone's mind, so much so that at this point, the explicit symbolism has escaped us. We see it all the time. It doesn't affect us or make us aware. But this explicit symbolism is imprinted on every device to remind us of the allurement to wisdom, the promise of omniscience, the desirability of beauty, and the ultimate capitulation of the entire race into sin. Our smartphone promises us these things, knowledge, discernment, wisdom, beauty, all things appealing to the lusts of eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And every time that logo with the bite taken out of it, it seems to mock us in some ways. We handle its contents without any sense for its potential for our harm. We mindlessly handle, uh, sample from its contents with no sense, uh, mindlessly, inattentively scrolling, feasting our eyes on all the buffet of its allurements, we do not sense the temptations and dangers that are resident within. We choose to be like naive and forget the instructions of the warnings of God. I call her naive as we sample from an endless buffet of instructions and warnings of God as we sample from the endless buffet of forbidden fruits. So today's digital allurements appeal to the same basic human weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Same thing. If you open up your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 3. And I think there's a, there's a page in your notes as well if you want to write some of these things down. Before we, before we go there, I'll give you your blanks in just a minute too. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll look at just 1 through 7. Okay. Hang on. I'll join you there just a moment. Genesis 1 through 3. We'll get there in just a second. So... Fill in your blanks here on, your, on page 9. It says, in our first session, I tried to demonstrate biblical theology that technology makes empty promises. Moving down the second blank, it says that it deceives us into thinking that we're becoming like God. And the first line of the second paragraph is, so that so much of our tech is used in the glorification and worship of self. Glorification and worship of self. Okay. All right, now I'm... Back over here on 11. I didn't cue you on what I was doing there, so now you're back on 11. Has it ever intrigued you or interested you as you read through the account of how the serpent tempted Eve? Just how that might have taken place, how that, how that seemed to develop there in that passage? Um, how is it that she would disregard the very explicit statements and commandments that God had said? God was not unclear in what he was saying. How he didn't want her, didn't want them to take of it, and to eat of it, and God wasn't clear. 
or, sorry, God wasn't unclear, so I'm trying to say, just like I was, but he isn't. Um, so I wonder how this might have taken place, but it seems to be that there is a tendency that we all share with Eve in this sense, that we, we tend to have, number one, a suspicion of any limitation or restriction placed upon us. We have this innate ability to susp- be suspicious of anyone or anything that would be point out to us our limitations. You're not, you know, what's, what's, what's Satan say to, to, to Eve here? Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat of, from any tree of the garden? Any tree? Come on, any means any. That's all of them. I think there's a subtle implicit here that there's no limitation for you. Any tree. Hasn't he said any tree? And so there's, I think there's this cultivation of a slight suspicion that certainly he doesn't mean that you should have limitations. God wouldn't want to do that, put restrictions on you, any tree. We have a reliance upon our own wisdom. I think Eve was being urged by the serpent here to rely on her own wisdom. Come on, think better about this. Hasn't God, she's asking a question to prompt her thought here, being relying on her own wisdom. Has God not commanded that you shall not eat from every, or you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, "From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it nor touch it, or you will die." And the serpent said to the woman, "You surely will not die." And that was a false, complete, bold claim, right? Bold denial of what God had said. But having had her suspicions aroused about God's goodness and his limitation over her and how she might be better served if she just rely on her own wisdom she certainly was being made curious about her new a new experience she was missing out on you know what's he going to say here god knows that in the day you'll eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil you're missing out you'll know more by taking of this fruit so there's this curiosity curiosity is a very powerful thing on the internet isn't it all you got to do is just uh, just throw something out there, a little clickbait along the way, get you to buy in. Curiosity is something that, for a human being, it's a strong appeal that allows you to disregard commandment of, the commandments of God and, and the word of God. If you start to explore curiosity over being committed to the commands of God, you're going to fall for the same trap. Notice that there's the implication that there's a you should be fixated on what's being withheld from you. He says... God knows that in the day you'll eat from this, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her and he ate. I believe some, in some way she was, able to, she was able to justify that reasoning for why she took. We're, we are able justifiers we can self-justify anything that we do why we think that certain activities maybe in and of themselves aren't sinful but we know that that's our heart being staged up for temptation we can go visit we can look at things online and yeah it's not full-on pornography but there are certainly suggestive images on there and there are certain things that are cultivating that appetite in our heart in a latent with slow and a under undermining way there's a Ability to justify why we're entitled to be able to indulge in that kind of content. 
Uh, we question the outcome. I put here number six, our questioning of the outcome, and that uh, we don't really believe it's, it's going to happen to us, that we don't really believe that we're, we're as foolish as the others who've fallen into that particular temptation. Our fragile trust is in the, in the character of God. We begin to subtly believe that God might be pulling out on us and that his not, he's not good. He's not giving us all things that are for our blessing. And things that he withholds from us are God's being stingy or being um, miserly in the way he's conducting himself with us. We seem insecure about what God has revealed. Somehow, Satan is able to cause her to waffle on what she knew solidly was what God had commanded them to do. He just rocked her confidence, made her insecure about what God had actually said. doesn't take much. If you are neglecting the scriptures, with, we'll talk about the distraction problem. It's very easy. Once you get away from the scriptures, even if you've been in church for years and years and years of your life, get away from the scripture for just even a short time, and your confidence on what God has said will be rocked easily. You'll, you'll become insecure about what God has revealed, and you'll start to rethink things and readjust and make changes, small compromises. Number nine, there's a lust for something more. Hmm, what is so intriguing about this one tree? How many trees might have been in the garden? Thousands? Hundreds? <laughs> you know, I don't even know. But why this one? Because there seemed to be something more here. There was a longing for greater enlightenment. To not be uh, uninformed, to, to know, to have knowledge. A desire to be like God is even in, implied in this verse. He says, uh, when you, your eyes will be open in verse 5, and, and you will be like God. I was trying to show you that that's t- kind of the appeal of technology, too. Something there. Um, a hunger for knowledge. So you can see all these garden-like temptations that are kind of bound up in this passage. I'm going to suggest to you, too, that these sorts of, these sorts of uh, principles are in operation in your own heart every time you're popping open a web browser, every time you're surfing online, every time you're digesting content from media sources. These are all things that are making a, a play for your heart. And I want you to be mindful of that. It's so subtle. Don't think that... You think, I know you're like me. You're thinking, like, if a snake came out of a tree and started talking to me, I'd know something was up, right? I'd be on high alert. I'd, I wouldn't know, no way I'd fall for that. No, you would. You'd be a sucker just like these guys. I think God, Adam, Adam's, Adam was our best hope, <laughs> not our last hope. Uh, he was our best hope in that situation. He's the, he, he was the, the best that man could have possibly put forward and still failed the test of pleasing God. So, um, don't think that you would be different. In fact, we are no different. So when we, we want to explore why our desires reign when we're online, why we use our phones indulgently, whether we're cognizant of it or not, we are dealing with garden-like temptations with our cravings. Our sin nature isn't switched off, so we can consume some delicious content on our devices. We are always actively engaged in feeding these appetites. So, is what you're feeding online, what you're feeding your heart online, is it uh, promoting spiritual health, or is it bringing corruption and curses and death ultimately to your life? Um, I mentioned uh, Brian Key's book it was helpful, but I do want to kind of temper that with a little caveat here. Um, he wrote a book called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, and I recommend you to read it, but I want you to... Uh, 
just examine with me the title of that book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. I think that's a brilliant title. I think it's very intriguing, enticing. Made me want to pick up the book and buy it. But the longer you think about it, there's something implied in that, I think, that suggests that it's the phone that's changed, transforming your heart. And, and maybe since that's, since that's true. But I also, I really think that more realistically, your heart, your, your phone is reflecting what your heart wants. And more or less, it's not your phone changing you. It would be very easy for me to blame something external to me. My phone, my internet, my the Hollywood and the cesspool they pump out all the time. It's so much fun to blame someone else, else outside of my, my, my own heart for my own sin. And we tend to externalize our sinful appetites. We blame technology devices. We get angry with big tech and corporations, especially when we feel like they're suckering us, they're, they're making us want their things, and they're, they are causing us to, uh, to, to come back. They're like programming us, and we feel like helpless against their, this, this appeal that they have. If you look at the back of your, I'm just going to switch you right to the back here on, on this, because we are all out of time. Um, I just want to give you a quick warning about this. Don't externalize your sin. Don't blame tech for your sin in your heart. The temptations that keep snaring you are not a result from your phone or your computer. It's so easy to be thinking or discussing the subject when discussing the subject to begin speaking about your device as something that's changing you or reprogramming you. The awful reality is that the way you're using technology is only revealing who you actually are. That's something we don't want to grip with, do we? That's that sin nature that still is resident in our heart. We still have the battle of the flesh within. So often we get angry with big tech companies and find fault with their manipulative schemes and algorithms that keep us glued to their platforms. We become enraged by their exploitation of us and our private data. We become willing... by the way, we willingly surrendered that data to them, so they're not exploiting us, except by our own permission, in reality. We say they violate our rights and our privacy and all of this stuff, and we feel like we got suckered by these shrewd tactics in the sense the powerlessness to resist their powerful allure and abuse. But whenever you feel like you're being taken advantage of, you get mad, don't you? I know I do. I get really ticked off. However, getting mad at your tech is misplaced anger. If you're upset that you've been drawn into this social vortex of social media, big, te- big tech's data mining and predictive analysis algorithms, you aren't seeing the bigger problem. That's like Eve blaming the fall of humankind on the forbidden fruit. That apple was so alluring. That's what got me. That's not, it's not, wasn't the, the problem wasn't the fruit. The problem was her heart and our hearts are exposed on the internet. Whatever you love, whatever you pursue, whatever you're treasuring, whatever you desire, it's all being captured, tagged, and cataloged. The data that's being reaped is being used in an ingenious way to advertise to you more delicious morsels of whatever appeals to your customized temptation palette. And you're actually helping to make your own temptations even more tempting. That's like placing the leash around your neck into the taskmaster's hand. Your bondage is a self-inflicted one, and you need a savior. That's the bottom line of this whole thing is that I, I do want you to kind of feel like powerless because you are. 
you need Christ to deliver you here. This is the only hope for you to gain control over what's going on in your heart and the passions and the desires and the cravings of your heart is to find that you have come to an end of yourself and you need Christ to reign within your heart. You need to understand and obey the scriptures and to, to, to find new ways to worship Christ in these tempta- temptation times. Um, so that's why I want to leave you three things or two things that's kind of two sides of the same thing. Flee temptation. Flee it. Nowhere in the Bible you will read that you should um, that you should resist temptation. The Bible doesn't say resist temptation anywhere. It, it says flee temptation. That's different. Fleeing it is different. You don't have to stand there under the constant exposure of temptation and just kind of brace up underneath it and try to muster through it. You are to flee it if you have to. Run. Um, you must know that how and where you are vulnerable, and the Bible says to make no provision for our flesh. Make a written strategy if you have to. Something that you will purposely avoid these tempting situations. Say, uh, your temptations and your, your sin often follows very repeatable patterns. In my life it does. I know my, pat- my sin that happens in this point was being staged up usually by six or seven different events that kind of click into place, boom, 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 and boom, I fall happens almost lockstep every time. If you look at the pattern, if you're, making, if you're saying, why do I keep sitting here? Look at the pattern. It's probably staging up a long ways ahead of time, and you have time to flee. There, there is a way of escape that you miss, that you forget, and you don't, don't take advantage of. So flee temptation. Turn from it. Pray that God will graciously deliver you from temptation, and guess what? He will. He will. And then, secondly, you flee temptation, but you just don't flee it. You flee somewhere. You flee to someone. Flee to Christ. Technology is a pseudo-savior. It promises to deliver you from loneliness and difficulty, depression, and anxiety. But Christ alone is the only one who can bring comfort and peace and power and grace to the challenges that you face. You might be looking for what you're, lo- what you're looking for will not be found anywhere else. You need to, you need to be bedrock convicted and um, convinced of that he is the only one that's sufficient for you in the time of your temptation in fact i recommend here start making a scripture catalog of verses that speak about christ's sufficiency for you in your time of temptation and then resort to those things they should be firing off pull the trigger on those verses and be thinking about them meditating on them considering them and um, let them be constantly in the um, the ram of your mind, as it were. Be thinking about that and how, how you might practice these things to the glory of God. I did promise you Q&A time, and I've expended almost all of it, but is there anything you'd like to say or comment at the end? I promise you I won't give you a long answer, and uh, I, mean, I, I will just point you to the fact that uh, there's so much more about this that I want to share. The um, next couple of weeks we are going to get into some... Uh, Specific ways. I want to talk to you about some of these sin patterns and how they stage up and see if you recognize these in your life. You would probably be better served to do battle against temptation to know how these temptations typically produce themselves. And so we'll look at those in the next couple of weeks. Anybody else have anything they want to share? I had to get rid of all my apple stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we, I, I thought about that. Thought, thought, thought the same thing, but you don't have to get rid of your apple stuff. Well, now that you see it, you can't unsee it. That's the problem. But just, I, I 
point that out just so that it's a reminder to you. When you pick that device up, just remember you've got the symbol for mankind's fall into temptation looking at you back in the face, and let that be a warning. You know, when I use my device, I've got to be warned. I'm be careful here, you know. Similar, similar temptations are facing me every time I use this device. It's not the device that's the problem, right? We know that. But you're right. <laughs> this is kind of funny. But, yeah. All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll close up, and if you have any things we want to talk about afterwards, it'd be great. Hope this is helpful. Thanks for coming here tonight. Trust it's a blessing. Lord, I thank you that you'll be with us tonight. And uh, as we've looked at these things, we can place ourselves right there in Genesis 3. We, we see the garden. We see the temptations there. And in that, Lord, I, I can't help but see how my own heart is laid bare. It's filleted open on the autopsy table. I could see exactly the same things play, at play in my own heart when I'm tempted. Um, distrust of you and your character, questioning, insecurity about the word of God. What does it say? The curiosity that I might be missing out or in some way uh, a lure for knowledge or to have an experience that I've never had before. And those things are all just very um, craftily laid snares for my heart. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see those for these things and to flee temptation, flee to Christ. You're so much better than all these things anyway and lord i pray that we would find our deliverances in you and in worshiping you and in the word of god we'll pray these things in the christ's precious and holy name amen